So Patty, a really interesting conversation today with Josh Smith, who runs GasPos. Um, you know, cash discounting in the fuel industry is not really anything like cash discounting in the retail restaurant. Um, totally different opportunity, but probably right now in our industry, it's it's actually one of the most um, urgent opportunities. There's a lot of urgency around it, and it's one of the most accepted opportunities. Meaning, gas station owners want this. They are very interested in it. And when you, when, you know, one of the things that's really cool with Josh is talking about the way that they're helping these gas stations to finance this transition to EMV compliant pumps and the cash Uh discount all in one. Uh It's crazy. I mean, they're saving these gas station owners $50,000, $100,000 in, in, you know, cash flow and eliminating the processing fees uh, with what's inside the store and at the pump. It's, it's really interesting. So I'll tell you to you know, buckle up. This one, we get pretty deep. This is a pretty deep interview. I'll get into a lot of nitty gritty details. I'm working with Josh Smith to come out with the uh, addition of the Merchant Sales Insight really soon. Um, uh-huh. And so we'll dive more into the detail there. But definitely, I love this interview. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And of course, our uh, today our podcast is sponsored by Valor Paytech the leader in ca- cash discounting, processor agnostic terminals, and virtual terminals. So definitely go check them out, ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R. Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. All right, everybody, I'm here today with my good friend, Josh, who is the CEO at Gas Posh. How are you doing today, Josh? Oh, uh, very well. Awesome, awesome. So, of course, uh, Josh Smith has been on the podcast in the past. Um, and we've been talking about gas stations and, and all of that. And so what I thought would be really helpful is just to start out here, Josh, instead of your backstory, since we've already had that in the past, tell us the current state of payment processing at fuel stations. You know, we had the EMV deadline and we felt all these kind of different things coming. Where are we at with fuel stations right now as far as payment processing? Yeah, um, it's a fascinating time uh, in the market. We're uh, about a year um I guess a year past the uh, EMV deadline um, for the dispensers. Uh, the major um, oil brands, so your Shell, Chevrons of the world, have reached you know 99% um, adoption, and uh, that's kind of immaterial uh, for our listeners today, uh, or your listeners, I guess. <laughs> I'm trying to conflate. Yeah, there are today. Yeah, there are today. Sure. And uh, the. Um, but uh, the independent, you know, kind of unbranded market uh, is wide open. And there's some things that are happening um, that are really disadvantaging them. One of the major acquirers has implemented uh, like a 65 basis point uh, EMV not compliance fee. Yep. Um, chargebacks are going up. Um, and these are customers that have ran, you know, 10 years without a chargeback. And then all of a sudden, card fraud is happening. And, you know, unfortunately, fraud flows like water. It's so, um, they're, they're seeing chargebacks for the first time in a long time. Um, and they're uh, also, um, switch fees are going up. Uh, Fiserv tripled their switch fee for Star on Prios. And normally that doesn't affect most retailers, you know, like uh, right. Right. you don't, you don't need to guess how much money is in your debit, your checking account uh, to see if you want to buy a hamburger or not. But uh, every time someone swipes at the pump, and they also charge around trip fee, so it's coming, back, coming and going. They're they're getting them, and uh, you know that's driving the cost of acquisition to basically double from an interchange perspective. And so uh, it's a very interesting time. And in the the independent market, um, 
they are wildly disadvantaged because if I'm a, a Chevron and I sell half a million gallons of fuel a month, I can get the money or Chevron will give me the money to make major equipment upgrades. Chevron wants their stores to have brand new everything because it, it increases their brand and you know, all, all boats lift, you know, kind of the rising tide thing. And on the other side, if I'm an independent marketer buying fuel off the spot price, there's no one to help me. It's so I may only sell 30 or 40,000 gallons of fuel and I really make my money selling beer and specialty wines and I may have a deli or a restaurant and, you know, a hundred thousand dollar expense uh, is a huge outlay. And yeah. imagine trying to have to finance a condo over three years, you know, who's got three, four thousand dollars a month to invest just in equipment. It, uh, it's a, it's an interesting time. So let's, you know, you said a bunch of stuff there that I, I kind of want to dig into a little bit for our audience that maybe isn't as familiar. So, so first of all, let's talk EMV for just a second. So obviously we're talking about chip cards and how a lot of the gas stations have not yet upgraded, the independents have not yet upgraded their pumps to be able to accept chip cards. Um, the reason for that, I mean, the short answer is the cost. Am I right? Or is there other reasons driving that? Um, it's absolutely the cost. Yeah. Which is, can you give us some idea? I mean, if I've got I've been independent. I've got four, you know, I've got four pumps with two sides each. So I've got like eight of these, you know, what, what am I going to spend? I know it varies all over the place, but rough, rough numbers. I mean, how expensive is this usually? Yeah, uh, it's outrageously expensive. Um, the, uh, so four dispensers, I mean, you're looking at 80 grand. Um, you're going to need a new point of sale system. That's another 20,000. Uh, you won't have most likely, uh, um, the communication lines, uh, gas pumps communicate at 4,800 baud, which is, you know, anybody that ever used a, a modem in the early nineties, that's, you know, 4.8 K, uh, you know, they need 56 K, uh, to get the chip data down the lines. Uh, so that could be anywhere from several thousand dollars, uh, for radio, like serial, like Wi-Fi, um, to another hundred grand. If you have to bust up concrete, um, even worse than that is, if they bust concrete up or remove the dispensers, depending on which state they're in, they have to come up to compliance and everywhere else. And a lot of these stores were built 30 years ago. Right. And so the there are some stores where they're literally looking at almost it's better just to sh like shut it down or do something yeah. else. Like can right. you know like shut the it, down? It's not even worth it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a so it's it's a huge problem and. On the other side, uh, there are technical delays in uh, just there's not enough people to physically go do the work. Um, becoming right. a, a gas pump service company is incredibly hard. It's incredibly expensive. Yep. And uh, you need, you know, you have to be very, very technically skilled in all kinds of different things from plumbing right. to electricity to. Right. So it's just it's just a very complex so, work. All right. So so basically, again, zooming out a little bit here, we have independent fuel stations and there's like hundreds of thousands, or I don't know, there's tens of thousands. How many are there? There's lots. Uh, there's about 60,000 in the U.S. All right. So we have these 60,000 independent fuel stations. Um, in order for them to become EMV compliant and accept these chip cards, it's not like a retail store where it's like, oh, upgrade your VX510 to this new Ingenico. No, you're, you're literally ripping pumps out. You're busting up concrete in some cases. And I know we're going to talk about your solution in a minute, which allows them to avoid that. But, you know, that's the generally accepted way to do it. Um, it's costing you know tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars to accomplish this. So as a result, they're not complying with the EMV kind of mandate. And then as a result of that, 
the you know fraud is increasing and processors are charging these risk assessments and these additional fees because they're not EMB compliant. Maybe you could explain to our audience as kind of the really short version of like, why would fraud increase at a gas station that's not compliant with EMB? Why would fraudsters kind of be drawn to that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when you're using mag stripes, um, if someone clones a card, uh, one of the things that they want to purchase is they can't really go to Saks Fifth Avenue or Nordstrom's and I think Nordstrom's went bankrupt, but anyways, they can't go like steal <laughs> Gucci purses anymore. Um, so what they'll do is they'll steal fuel. Um, you know, fuel is a commodity. It's easy to sell. Um, it's incredibly dangerous. You know, they'll, they'll take a van, put a 300 uh, gallon bladder tank in there and just fill it up as much as they can. And then they'll go sell it to someone uh, on the black market and drop it off. Um, and so they can, and there's actually organized crime rings um, that do this. And yeah. uh, it happened in Canada uh, several years ago when they switched to EMB um, at the dispensers. And it actually took the Canadian market four years to achieve full compliance. And they only have 20,000 stores. We have almost six times that many uh, here in the States. Wow. And uh, so uh, unfortunately, if I've got a bunch of clone credit cards, uh, that's one of the few spots I can still use them. Right, because then if you're you're using them there because, you know, again, to clarify for those who maybe don't know, you know, you can clone a credit card actually really easily if all you're talking about is just a mag stripe. What you can't clone as easily is the chip. And so if you went to a gas station where it was EMB compliant and you tried to use one of these cards, it would kick back and say, insert the card. Right. But in, but in these cases, they're not EMB compliant. And so so we have this kind of perfect storm happening. And so, you know, now these these you know, fuel stations really do need to upgrade. They need a good solution, which we're going to talk about. So now let's shift gears because we're going to bring this narrative back together. And I want to talk about cash discounting. So um, obviously cash discounting, very different for fuel stations, meaning they're pretty familiar with this concept that's been around for a while. So talk to us about the current state of cash discounting with fuel stations and maybe even the difference between kind of this pay at the pump versus in the store. So talk about that a little bit, if you could. No, this is a super interesting and important topic. The uh, it's very important to bifurcate uh, what happens with the fuel sales versus you know inside um, the store. The uh, fuel sales um, are federally regulated. Uh, there's type testing, which uh, you know is your state weights and measures. And what they want to make sure is that if someone pays twenty dollars, that they actually get twenty dollars uh, in product. And one of the regulations is around the receipts, where the receipt has to match uh, perfectly uh, the what's on the dispensers. You know, like mm. you don't want uh, a nefarious actor to rip the consumers off. That's not good for anybody. And so why that matters for cash discounting uh, in general is you couldn't just slap, uh, you know, 30 cent. Uh, in-kind discount on the bottom of a receipt and get away with it because it's going to be out of balance with the dispensers. Um, also, the price per gallon uh, at the pump uh, is constantly changing. And so, I mean, they may change their prices four or five times a day if it's a very busy store uh, or there's lots of volatility in the market. So you have to manage that. And it's been done for decades. Uh, there's academic papers, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s, about the benefits uh, of cash discounting um, for fuel. Uh, one of the things that happened in 2008, it became super popular because as the price of fuel was skyrocketing then like it is now, they wanted to offer a discount because consumers became irrational about the price of gas. You'd hear stories of 
someone driving dozens of miles uh, to save two or three cents a gallon. And so a cash discount that, uh, you know, as we know, people don't actually take advantage of very often. If you go you know, 10 cents, 20 cents off on a cash discount, you can stick on Gas Buddy. Hey, we're 20 cents less than the guy across the street and attract people to your store. And then it kind of washes out. Um, So uh, it's very important. But the main thing is to keep it in a compliant manner. And it's not compliance in the way we normally think about this. Like, is it Visa compliance or Durban compliance? No, it's like weights and measures compliance. And that's a different level of regulatory burden. Like nobody wants to mess with the ag department. Like it's just not a good look or something you want to have happen. And so in most fuel point of sale systems, this is a critical feature. You know, it's a we have customers, uh, especially marinas, that may sell fuel at six different prices for the same product, or at a truck stop, um, the it's they don't sell enough um, <laughs> reefer. It's not not cannabis, but uh, re- fuel for refrigerated trucks. Uh, They don't sell enough of it to haul in dyed diesel. Uh, It's like problematic. So what they do is they'll sell the truckers the same diesel fuel at two different prices. It's so like because there's no um, federal excise tax on uh, fuel that's not used over the road. And like, you know, farmers get special rates and like nobody wants to rip off their local farmer. Like that's that's not cool. Like so it's it's just very complex. And so you have to build in these discounts um, and fuel tiers uh, is a fundamental part of the software um, itself. Uh, Then you go inside the store uh, and it gets even more interesting. Um, So you you can't also just put up a sign that says everything has a cash discount because you have lottery tickets. You know, like I was actually been racking my brain the last few hours, like what's the estimated value or the EV of discounting lottery tickets like if you sold six times as many you'd actually come out ahead if you did a five percent discount <laughs> because they only make a five percent commission but i don't even know if that's legal and i don't like you know consult an attorney before you know, yeah, suggesting such as this but um no you have to manage that uh there are state laws around cigarettes like in the state of arkansas for instance you can't sell them below a floor and people would get in trouble because they would give a free lighter away with their pack of cigarettes, but the state would say, no, that discount drives below the limit, so you can't do it. Um, So what we've done, and we spent the better part of five years building this out, is making a cash discounting program that takes all this complexity and removes it so that you can get cash discounts by the department or category, that you can hard code certain things out, that um, maybe they don't have the infrastructure at the fuel pump uh, to support a cash discount. Um, and the state says you've got to show both prices. So we we separated the gas and then we separated the departments and we have a, a huge screen. Um, it's about an eight inch screen that is the customer display and it actually shows the cash discount there. Uh, and it says, hey, you could get a cash discount, you know, which is ultimately calculated for each individual sale based off the basket of goods. And then you're saying and that that's pulling together maybe their fuel purchase and their the things they bought inside the store. And there's kind of different cash discounting for these kind of different items, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Okay. So I love everything you've said so far. And I think it's interesting because like our audience at this point, everyone knows that you're an expert on this. They can just, it's like, you know, you can always tell when somebody's talking about something they're passionate about that they're an expert on. So the other probably overwhelming sentiment 
from my audience is like, oh my word, I could never in a million years sell a fuel station based on what you just said, right? So let's talk about that. Let's dive into that. So we, I know what you do on the technology side. Again, I think we get simplified in saying, you know, you bring compliant cash discounting, meaning compliant with a lot of various things to fuel stations, including the in, what they sell inside and at the pump. But what about for the agent in the ISO that's, that's driving by these independent fuel stations every day, looking over going, yep, that's that one that Josh was talking about on the podcast that I don't understand at all, right? How can they take advantage of this and how does GasPOS help them to do that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, like I said, we have spent years um, building this out. And I think a lot about how we do this is, you know, how a local, um, you know, economic development group will, will do it. You know, like oftentimes a city may go buy a plot of land and they'll lay the foundation for businesses to come build a, you know, a technology park or an industrial park. And that's how I, I see this. Like, we've built this to take the complexity away and i have dozens of employees of mine that are either uh, contractors or w2 employees and their entire job is to run a customer success program so that the agents and, and your listeners can go out and call on a store tee up an opportunity and all they have to do is get a conversation started and i like, sell what you're good at and then let me bring my guys in and handle the um getting the dispensers put in getting the point of sales put in making sure that they have underground compliance and this compliance and all of this stuff and be, take the benefit um, away from it uh, because you know I actually have a, an agent background. You know, we, we started as a referral partner of a agent of a sub ISO of another ISO. So like you know you can't. I remember. Yeah. I remember having conversations with you back when it was like you know a little, little bit past that, but it was still like really early days, and you know you were getting into it and everything. It's pretty crazy when you look at that versus what you've built today in this company that is you know pretty almost uh it's like a you're not a full service provider but you know you guys are really you've built something pretty cool so thank you it uh, it's been a wild ride it uh it's a uh, it's something that we're, we're super passionate about and um no i i remember and it was the fall of 2017 um i called a uh the president of an iso at the time and um i was talking to him about deploying systems at no cost and uh, seeing if he wanted to fund it. And uh, we were just three people in a garage and yeah. I figured, hey, if this guy will fund putting the systems out there, we can split the money and this will right. be amazing. Well, I, I love this. I love that you brought this up. This perfect kind of segue because I, I want to continue this conversation, but I want to talk about economics and financials, both for the fuel stations and for the, the agents and ISOs. Let's start with the fuel stations though. So at the at the top of this, this podcast episode, and this interview, we were talking about this kind of crazy tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands in cost for this independent fuel station to upgrade. Talk about what that looks like with the gas cost model and give us a little more insight on how that works. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so we have an equipment as a service model. Uh, we'll come in, uh, we provide new fuel dispensers. Uh, we provide the hanging hardware, which are you know, hoses and nozzles uh, for the first year. Um, the uh, then um, we'll also provide the point of sale. Uh, we'll help fund uh, other upgrades um, that that may need be needed if they're uh, 
you know, sub submersible pumps, which is what gets the fuel from the underground tanks, like to your car. Uh, if those are jacked up, if there's other problems, um, we'll come in and fix it. We actually have a pre-manufactured gas pump or gas station. That's kind of cool that you can drop off a trailer and stand up a gas station in two days instead of nine months. But, uh, now, basically, we remove the upfront barrier uh, of the capital, and then uh, we're a, a registered payment facilitator um, moving even farther up the food chain rapidly, and uh, so we can control the settlement, the billing, the authorizations, the whole nine yards, and uh, um, we just kind of control uh, the whole ecosystem. And what makes it really amazing, especially for the agents, is these are 10-year-long agreements um, that have very sticky, uh, you know, if they don't pay us, it's like, you know, okay, fine, we'll take your gas pumps. And like, that's not going right. <laughs> like, to the, the risk <laughs> of turn is incredibly low. <laughs> and, uh, so it's, um, it's a very good model. And for the stores, um, it's huge. You know, they save the hundred grand. Um, if they can get financing, it's for two or three years. So they save a ton of money. Uh, we've, we've got analysis and I actually need to send this to you so you can put it up on one of the, the statement analysis tool. And, uh, but it saves about $15,000 a year um, net net per store. And, uh, you know, for someone that's doing about, you know, 750,000 to a million in sales, that's a lot of money. Well, and, well, and of course, we, you know, not only they're doing 750 to a million, 750,000 to a million in sales, but their margin on all of the fuel sales is like nothing. I mean, they're very, it's very, very minimal, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they operate on fuel at like less than 5% margins. Uh, cigarettes is five percent. Um, beers ten percent. Uh, so yeah, like they're it's incredibly thin, and uh, that gets uh, kind of into the cash credit discounting uh, mod side of it. And credit card fees are the second highest fees uh, that our merchant fees that a store will pay behind their. Uh, labor cost, and um, both of which are going up, one because of inflation, both because of inflation. And so uh, isolating that, uh, as a, for instance, the industry does $600 billion a year in sales, um, pays almost $15 billion in merchant fees all in, and only profits about 10 billion. So it's a wow. massive amount of that's money. So, so that's insane. So I gotta I have to say that again. So you're saying that for the average independent fuel store, they pay more in merchant fees than they get in profits. Absolutely. That's insane. So basically, if you go in there and help them to eliminate, effectively eliminate their processing fees, you're, they could double their, their take-home profits at the end of the year, basically. No, they absolutely can. Wow, that's insane. Wow. Okay. All right. So I think that's pretty good. I don't think we need to say much more about that. That's a good case for the, for the fuel station. What about for the agent and the ISO? Um, obviously, there's a lot of moving parts here. You have you know, financing, you have equipment options, different things like that. You know, your team's going to handle it. They're going to, like you said, lay the foundation, do it, you know, tee it up for you. Um, and then your team comes in, does this big installation. What is the agent in the ISO generally like? What's the opportunity for them? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, we split, uh, we start off at 50%. And then if someone wants to go gangbusters, we have a plan that goes all the way up to 90%. Um, there, there's no buy rate, there's no basis points. It's just we're taking our hard costs. And uh, that's kind of where the network effect is, is that we've got, you know, super low cost at this point and we can spread the wealth out. And we, they're also using our credit facilities, the whole nine yards, my employees, everything is at their disposal. And then, you know, we start at 50-50 splits and go up. It's so uh, just kind of back in the envelope math, um, if you took a, a, a traditional cash credit discounting program and, you know, we say, okay, like 
400k in sales a year would qualify uh, that's like what eight grand um that's there to split but um you're also t- walking in these retailers for 10 years and I, I talked about the flexibility um in the system uh the gas stations are incredibly savvy uh their merchant costs are something that's at the top of their mind constantly so one it's a huge opportunity and they're actually calling us and asking for it more and more um, and helping us build it so where it's better for their consumers and like there's less friction um, right. there. And so uh, it's we're almost seen as conquering heroes a lot of times. That, that sounds kind of like an arrogant thing to say, right. but like they need help. Like, yeah. and uh, we, um, I have uh, gas pump sales guys that will quit their jobs and have signed up and, and joined uh, with us. Um, excuse me. Uh, we had a, a guy that sells fuel uh, quit his job and sign up. Um, it's like there are people that like are in the industry are seeing what we're doing and they're just running uh, towards right. it. So there's well, one, a- and I mean, you know, one of the things we didn't really touch on as much earlier, but you know, unlike retail and restaurant, you know, where the idea of cash discounting is kind of this novelty and like, oh, okay, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I would imagine there's like significantly less friction or 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 pushback that you would get from a fuel station owner talking about, hey, this is something that's already uh, happening at the pumps let us do it for you correctly. And why don't we just do it in the store as well? I mean, am I right there? Is that, does that, is that a little bit of an easier pitch than it would be maybe for retail? Uh, it absolutely is. And, uh, you know, like um, if you can find someone that's doing cash discounting at their dispensers and they're unbranded, it's a home run. You know, it's, it's like, Hey, you're already doing this. Like why not just do it for beer and cigarettes too? And they have this aha moment um, where they're like, absolutely let's roll. And then uh, even if like, you know, Wobs and Pilot and the major truck, st- uh, you know, um, Travel Plaza companies, they all do it. And so you can point to the, you know, a few exits down. It's like, hey, you see how they're doing this? Like, we can help you do this as well. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay, so, uh, wow, it's such an interesting topic. And so I think for our audience, the big takeaway here is, you know, rather than driving by that independent fuel station, even if you don't feel really confident or like the expert, you can go in and start the conversation and then work with a company like yours to send some referrals over, which is going to result in number one, you know, really helping the, the merchant in two ways. In this case, number one is potentially eliminating a massive upfront cost or at least spreading that out with, you know, providing capital and things of that nature so that they can upgrade their uh, equipment so that they are EMB uh, compliant and they meet that criteria. Um, and then secondly, implementing a system that's going to allow for the cash discount, which would eliminate, in this case, their second largest expense, an expense that's even larger than their profit, which is crazy to me, uh, which is the merchant processing. I mean, is that is that kind of the big takeaway here? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so I know a lot of people in our audience here are going to want to reach out. They're going to want to learn more about GasPost. So where would you send them to learn more about reselling with you guys? Absolutely. Um, you can come to our website. It's uh, gaspause.co. And um uh, click the menu button and you'll see become a gas pause partner. Uh, you can fill the form out there. Um, you can also send emails uh, to sales at gaspods.co. Um, you can send them to HR at gaspods.co. That, it doesn't mean you got to be an employee. It's just a, a monitored inbox that that we get and we track. And, uh, or uh, feel free to call us. Um, you can talk to my support guys and uh, They'll answer the phone um, and help get you the right way. Or uh, it's eight six six seven gas pause. Uh, you can hit one for sales, and uh, you'll be able to talk uh, to our salespeople that are, are there to help you. And um, again, like the main takeaway that I hope people hear is that we have laid the foundation um, 
for y'all success. Like we want to work with you. Th this is something like, you know, normally people hate or in the aid industry hate paybacks because it's like Stripe or Square or Toast. And it's like, you know, how many episodes are there? It's like, how do you sell against this payment facilitator? Right. And we're the exact opposite of that. Like, like we are here to be a benefit and uh, offer a very unique service. And uh, we can talk about the truck stops as well. That's a whole different ball game where there's, you know, hundred grand a year to make per truck stop. Um, and they have very unique needs. And uh, no, it's a, uh, we, we want people to please call and uh, we want to help you and we can tee you up for massive success. And I want to say that website again, just because it's a little bit different. So it's G-A-S-P-O-S dot C-O. That's that right. Okay. I want to make sure I got that right because I don't want anybody, people to email whatever. So, so G-A-S-P-O-S dot C-O. Josh, thank you so much as always. Love uh, your insights on this. I, I know that our audience is going to start to take notice of this. It's one of those verticals that's kind of like hanging out there that's like low-hanging fruit. It's really, really easy right now to go get. Um, but we really are, I think it's interesting because it's one of those industries where there really is a little bit of lack of distribution in terms of sales. There's just not enough salespeople right now that are going after these independent stations to provide them with the help they need, which is a good thing because that means there's a lot of opportunity. So I uh, appreciate the time, appreciate the insights and always a pleasure having you. Yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's a pleasure and uh, thank you again. Well, everybody, as uh, we've said before, this podcast is brought to you by Valor Paytech. Uh, you know, James, I was talking to Eric over at Valor the other day, and, you know, I was trying to get a sense for how is this going? You know, I mean, they are pretty much an, a fairly new player in this space. And, uh, you know, he was telling me they have scores of agents and ISOs working for them now. And, you know, some of the places where they're selling is retail, deli, restaurants, even car dealerships, you know, and... Yep. I said to him, I said, you know, Eric, what's the overall, what's like the the thing that brings people the most, you know? Yeah. And he said, you know, it's really, it's because it's so feature rich and it's, uh, you know, provides a large customizable feature set. That's really what sets them apart from the competition. You know, it's, it's yeah. each of these little features and we've talked about them in the past, like engage my customer, the fact that it's cloud-based you know, which makes for fast downloads, you know, being omni-channel and most importantly, cash discounting. Yeah. You know, what's funny, Patty, I was going to bring up, I forgot about it till now. Um, in our group, I think it was uh, maybe two days ago, um, uh -huh. there was a post where somebody just not like a paid, you know, whatever, they were just were talking right. about Valor and they showed a picture of this, one of their clients where it, I think it was a car that crashed into the store. Oh my gosh. It was crazy. And everything, <laughs> I can't remember all the details, but anyway, bottom line is the, the terminal was fried. I mean, it was a disaster, you know? Right. And he said something to the effect of, hey, my merchant was still able to batch thanks to Valor because <laughs> the batch was in yes. the cloud. Because and it was so in the cloud. Kind of giving a shout out. So uh, if you're interested in learning more about Valor, you really, if you haven't ever seen a demo, you really need to check it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's very um, cool. Go to ccsalespro.com slash Valor, V-A-L-O-R. Make sure you check it out and, uh, and get a demo. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. So, Patty, today I want to talk about, uh, you know, kind of answering this question of when is it the right time to build a team? Um, 
I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of experienced reps who you talk are, a lot about this. I mean, with your clients, I know. I do. I do indeed. Yeah. Yes. Um, and you know, the question is, you know, when is it the right time to, to build a team and even maybe some of the tips around kind of getting started with this. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I have started to really notice a pattern of really bad mistakes that people make in this area. Um, okay. The top mistake is starting a team in the first place. So I need to talk about that for a minute because I will say for the vast majority of our listeners, if you are a individual successful merchant services agent mm-hmm. and you want to start a team, please reach out to me first and, and let's build, let's take 10 minutes. I'll give it to you for free just so I can build you a little spreadsheet and show you the math of what this looks like because it's not good. Okay. Right. Yeah. You need to understand like you're going to give these reps some percentage of your residual Mm-hmm. And what you're going to find is that it's in many cases, it's almost harder and it almost takes more time to help an agent make a sale than it does for you to make a sale you yourself. Make a sale. Sure. sure. You know? And so it's like, you're putting in the same amount of work, mm-hmm. massively more frustration mm-hmm. in order to get a smaller, a significantly smaller residual cut. Right. Right. Now that's not really a good thing to do. That's, that's not a great idea. So I'm not, you know, there, there is a time I love, I've built several teams. I love building teams. I help people build teams all the time. And I think it's a good thing. And I'll say when it's good, but the number one mistake is really make sure that you want to do it and that you have a path to making a lot of money at it. Right. Um, right. You know, or maybe you just want to like help people change their lives for the better and see a huge improvement in their financial well-being. Right. Mm-hmm. That's a great reason to start a team, mm-hmm. but understand that it's going to take a really, really long time for it to make any financial sense for you in that context, right? Um, Doesn't it also in that context, it would seem to me, and we've talked about this before, you know, rather than by building a team of, um, of sales agents, maybe building a team of referral partners, building referral partners, building a team of telemarketers, building a Mm -hmm. team of cold callers. Um, I used to have, uh, at one point I had three, uh, you know, kind of younger people starting out in their career that I was paying mm-hmm. by the hour and they would go out and just walk into businesses and do a little survey with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then depending on the results of that survey, they would recommend that that person meet with me mm-hmm. and they would schedule an appointment for me, you know, face to face and they would schedule a face to face. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So the idea of, you know, uh, and it's interesting because you're kind of going right down the path I want to go down, which is okay. the, the first step basically is this build an infrastructure around yourself before you try to build a team. Mm-hmm. Okay. If you don't do that, you're going to end up doing a bunch of work that you don't want to do and that you really shouldn't be doing. Mm, yeah. Right. So right. what's, what's going to happen here is, you know, you're going to end up in a situation where all of a sudden you're doing paperwork and pricing and you're doing, you know, installing terminals and you're doing this. And all of a sudden you're going to become like the $12 an hour support person for all these agents that you just hired. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a really bad idea. Instead, yeah. Yeah. go ahead and hire some people to do your appointment scheduling, to do your marketing activities, to do whatever, right. And to do your customer service, your tech support. And then what's going to happen is when you get to a point where you say, wow, like I have more leads than I can handle. And, and I, and I have this team of people that's actually pretty well trained now and they could handle more work. Mm -hmm. Now it's time to go ahead and start bringing on salespeople. And yeah, sure. Now you're going to bring in salespeople and you have all the leverage. You're not trying to recruit people and say, please come sell for me and just go cold call all day. 
Right. You're saying, look, I've got more leads than I can handle. I need somebody to help me follow up on those. Well, right. a good salesperson that hears that is going to say, where do I sign? You know, all I got to do is sell leads. Sure. Right. right? right. Give me a small residual split. Give me some uh, salary. I'm good to go. Okay. So number one is get a team of employees around you. And again, I say a team, this could be literally two people, right? right, right, um, right. And they could both be part-time to start with, you know, but start to get a team of people to do these other tasks that are going to become overwhelming if you bring on a team. Um, mm -hmm. Number two, avoid my, my, my second, uh, the second biggest mistake. Uh, and that is not, not 1099 contractors, please. Okay. Um, you're starting a team. Listen, if you want to do a team of 1099 contractors, you better be able to recruit a hundred of them. Yeah. Sure. Okay. The first six months or a year, if mm -hmm. you can't do that, do not, please do not waste your time. Right. Okay. Right. Those of you that are listening, I mean, a W2 can be a headache, but, you, but the rewards are far better. Right. I mean, well, actually both of them are kind of like equally a headache. The difference is that you can control the outcome a bit more with the W2. Right. You know, the 1099s, the reason that oh, those of you that are listening are like, James, how can you say this? I'm, you know, you believe the 1099 is, is the, the end all. Yeah, I agree that for you, 1099 is the right thing. That's great. You want to own your residuals. You want to have all that. But I'm not talking about another you. I'm talking right. about a different kind of person. I'm talking about somebody who's not interested in becoming a world-class entrepreneur. I'm talking about somebody who wants to work a job that they enjoy. They want to have a good culture. They want to go home and spend time with their family. And they want to just make a solid income. Those people actually can tear it up in this industry because they just know how to work hard and they go to work, they do their job, they come home. They, like that, you know, that's actually what you want. And so what you're going to find is you're going to get massively better results out of hiring one or two full-time salary plus commission W-2 salespeople and then actually helping them to be successful by providing them with resources, leads, whatever, and training them and working with them, you're going to make so much more money there because you don't have to share in the residual as much. You're just going to pay a salary plus a small spiff. That's going to make you so much more money than bringing on 20 1099 reps mm -hmm. where you got to give away what you really like want, which is the residual. Yeah, exactly. yeah, or more. And, right. and, and then and you're now you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off for no reason. You can't really control them. You don't really know what they're going to say. And mm -hmm. so now your brand is hung out to dry. So it's, if you're wanting to start a team, get a team of employees around you to make you really productive and to give yourself, you, know, you got to have extra capacity. It's well, that's so what important. I like is what you're saying. Give yourself that extra capacity. Yeah. And then once you have that capacity, the people who are sort of supporting you understand the business because right. you have and you haven't had a take days out to train them because they've come to understand the business by working with you. That's what exactly. you're saying, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think of it like, you know, I think about our statement analysis company, ISOAMP, you know, um, mm -hmm. wow. I mean, that was a very expensive business for me to start. And one of the reasons is because I have consistently had probably 60% more labor available than what I needed as far as our statement analysts, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well, finally things have really started to heat up. You know, in the last week we did, um, I think over a thousand, you know, statements or something just in the last few wow. days, you know, mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. like the fact that I had all these employees, we were still, everybody was still able to leave by, you know, five o'clock and, you know, we were good. Um, and now we're like, okay, now I'm going to hire some more people. Cause I, you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're going to make things happen. You first have to have the excess capacity. You don't want to be training people when it's, everything's under fire. Right. You know, it's like, wow, we're, we made eight sales today and nobody knows how to key them in and nobody knows how to set the terminals up and nobody knows how to do anything. And now all of a sudden you're missing your kid's baseball game because right. you're you have to do all this it. stuff yeah. for what you could have no employees and be making a ton of money. Why are you doing that? Like take a step back 
organize things first and say, well, right now I'm, some of you are listening, you're making $200,000 a year, $180,000 a year. You may have to make 140,000 this next year in order to pay these employees to come around you. Long-term, it'll still be beneficial because you're actually going to make a lot more sales this next year because these people are going to help you after you get them trained. But then it's going to set you up either to grow personally and to make a lot more sales with not doing things you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And it's also going to set you up to where if you wanted to bring on two or three salespeople full-time, then you could bring all these two or three people that you trained on the operational side, you could bring right. them in full-time. Right. And now you're off and running. So, um, yeah, so I think, you know, when the right time is to start a team is when, number one, you know what you're doing, you have a good cash flow coming in, and you've built a good infrastructure around yourself that has some additional scale to it where you could be able to bring some people in. Um, Mm -hmm. And the next is don't do it until you can afford to take the risk of hiring the employees. Yeah. You know, got to hire the employees. Um, I will say if you go to ccsalespro.com, our main website, ccsalespro.com, right at the top there, uh, I think you might have to scroll over one, but I got that slider at the top. Uh, One of the eBooks there is how to build a merchant services sales team. Yeah, I saw that, right? It's a free eBook, but I would really recommend going through that. It would be very helpful to you and kind of flesh this idea out. But I'd really challenge you, those of you that are like, oh, I really want to start a team. Look, you know, I get it. You're tired of cold calling. You've been doing it for years. You're you're trying to figure out what's next. You want to have more purpose. I think that's fantastic, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things are, are considerations, but don't jump the gun and make your life miserable for no reason. You yeah, know. I mean, you know, and I know you've talked about this in the past where people think, hey, I'm doing great. I'm going to bring somebody in and I'm going to do even better. And, right. you know, it it just doesn't work that way, um, no. you know, and, 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 and as much as you want to bring in more business, you have to be patient, right? Be I mean, patient and you and you have to be you have to be focused on what matters. You, know, you have to build a foundation. You can't build a house before you have a foundation. Right. Um, and so you, you have to have that foundation built in. And a good, a good entrepreneur can build a solid foundation like that in 90 days. You know, um, Go out there and, and hire a couple of people and start training them, maybe even people that you know and that you already trust. You know, Bring them in, get them trained on the industry, have them work with you, spend an enormous amount of time training and training and communicating and communicating. And then you'll have that base in 90 days and then go out there and find that sales rep and hire them as a W-2 employee, bring them in, pay them 35000 a year plus, you know, a 15% residual override a contingent upon employment. You know, you can do that like that. And then you are making a lot of money on that. Like if that person mm-hmm. is successful, that's good. And because you're paying them a salary, you can kind of control what they're doing, how, how much they're working, all of those things. And, and so, again, definitely check out the ebook. There's a lot more to it, a lot of tips there for free. But right. um, I really think this is something that um, agents need to be a little more careful when they're considering starting a team to make sure they do it right. Good stuff, James. Thanks. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com. Well, James, you know, we can add Apple now to the list of companies making it easier for merchants to accept tap-and-go payments. Right. Uh, right. The company that brought us, you know, the iPhone and the iWatch, you know, et cetera, now plans to allow merchants to use their iPhones to accept contactless payments. Right. And this isn't brand new. I think we've talked about this before. In fact, I kind of like this image, uh, you know, 
of uh, the idea of phone to phone payments, right? We've talked yes. about that with regards yep. to MasterCard and Visa. You know, I check out the merchant prompts to prompts the customer to hold their a Apple Pay enabled iPhone um, or their contactless credit or debit card or some other digital wallet near the per merchant's iPhone, and the payment gets securely completed using NFC technology. You know, Visa and MasterCard have each introduced similar capabilities as as we've discussed. You know, for merchants using Android devices, right. and just to kind of confuse us all, I this is one of the things that kind of blows my mind. Visa calls its product tap to phone. Okay. Mastercard calls its product tap on phone. Okay. And now we have from Apple tap to pay. Okay, got it. So tap <clears throat> to phone, tap on phone tap to pay now now one thing right at the beginning here that maybe you can clarify for me from your research i don't know sure. i was i'm still a little bit uh behind the eight ball on this particular topic i read like one article about it and then i didn't really dive much deeper so is apple you know providing payment processing services to merchants meaning like you tap on the phone and like then apple gets that money into the merchant's account in some way or is this just a technology that Apple is now has on the iPhone that NMI can integrate with? And you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah, it's the technology. That's what I thought. That's that's my understanding. It's an app, you know, that you can add to your phone, mm -hmm. and it it basically NFC. You know, it it it'll go to whoever the processor would be normally. All right, but that, but that's it's more like a a really fancy gateway, pretty much that Apple built <clears throat> for their phone that allows this capability. But then that gateway still needs to be attached to some kind of a traditional merchant account. The right, you end. still have to get yourself a merchant account okay. with somebody. That's kind of what know? I thought when I was reading it because it looked like some of the integrations they had done with different companies. And so, you know, to me, I was like, when I saw it, I was kind of like, what's the, all the buzz? I mean, I get it. it. It is a really cool technology, but I feel like our industry, the it was weird when I when I was seeing what what people were saying about it in our industry. They seemed very fearful of it, of you know, Apple trying to compete with us. And then when I read the news article, I'm like, I don't get it. I don't see the competition here. This no, is, I don't see the competition either. I just this is see, a fancy you know, dongle. It's not no. You don't have to have a dongle on the phone anymore. Don't need, need a phone. dongle on the phone but, anymore. Is really what it boils down to. Sure. You know? and, and of course, I can see a future threat. You know, of maybe Apple eventually wants to say, Hey, you don't need a merchant account. We will provide that to you. Like so, I see right. that. I mean, right now they're working with Stripe. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. the first platform that's going to offer this tap to pay. Now that's um, interesting. That's a competitive yeah. threat for sure. That I think is, is a competitive threat and it's going to be using it with uh, the clients it has on shop. What is it called? Shopify, I believe. Shopify. Yep. You're right. Sure. Um, you know, use a lot for these pop-up stores and farmers yes. markets. Right. Yes. Um, but it says it wants to work with other payment platforms and app developers to make right. this widely right. available. So, you know, yeah. watch the space. I think it could be really interesting, yeah. particularly if it's going to partner with folks like Stripe. Yeah. Well, and again, to, to me, it's like, okay, if I'm if I'm an agent in ISO looking at this and it's like mm -hmm. the big takeaway is, you know, 12 to 24 months from now, you probably will never again need to sell a dongle that would yeah. go on the phone. The phone is the dongle now. And right. so that's unnecessary. Right. I mean, because, you know, I mean, MasterCard already partnered with NMI and Global. Right. You know, for its tap on phone. Right. Right. Uh, Visa, I think, is working. Uh, I believe Visa is working with Fiserv. OK. Uh, for its tap to phone. So, right. yeah, I think, you know, and what I've heard from MasterCard and Visa is 
this has really taken off in a lot of other markets, particularly developing markets. Yeah. Like Asia. Um, I could see that. Sure. Right. You know, where sure. there's lots of phones, not enough terminalization. I mean, one, one other little interesting observation I had about it is I think that in these emerging markets, especially, I think Apple is in a unique position to dramatically reduce the risk of payment processing with this. Mm -hmm. There's just so much more data involved in like, here's this phone that's like connected via like biometrics to my card and they right. know it's me. And so all of a sudden I could definitely see, you know, where our industry has kind of maybe shied away from some of these um, markets around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, where now that would be interesting. And even for some of your higher risk, I think like as it'll be interesting to see how even the cannabis industry and things like that as they move forward, where I could see eventually it being like, well, we can take these kind of payments only because there's a biometric scan. We know that this person is of the mm -hmm. correct age or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I think it's, I really think it's an interesting play. I actually really like it. I think Apple is very smart to do it this way. Um, oh, I think so too. Yeah. As a user of Apple, phones and products. I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be fantastic because I already have started to move away from my wallet. I still carry my wallet. Usually I forget it sometimes now, but um, I still carry it. I really hope mm -hmm. that 12 months from now, I never need to put a wallet in my, in my uh, pants again ever. Um, because, you know, on my phone, you know, I want to have everything on there. I'm, I rarely carry cash anyway. So I think this kind of fits into that whole narrative of kind of like, okay, all of this data is on the phone for people that are concerned about privacy. This is like the antichrist you know here right. it's kind of, i mean this is really bad you know what i mean but yeah but for somebody like me i'm like hey i want the convenience i get it i like it this is great um and so i think it's i think it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out i i, I think it's going to be really interesting you know i think this ties in with what we talked about micro margins in the past right right exactly um, i have a lot of friends that are out there you know selling you know at farmers markets and concerts and things like that and it's always a hassle for them you know yeah. Can you Venmo me the money? Can you this me the money? You know, mm -hmm. I got I can't find my dongle to put on my phone. Um, you know, the idea that they can just tap to the, to another person's phone. Um, you know, it 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 it, it's a, it incentivizes them to be real merchants. I believe. Yeah, yep, love it. Good stuff, Patty. We'll definitely keep us up to date on this one. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.